1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another special edition of the podcast. As you know, every so often, we here get to sit down with people who've written important books. Today, I'm very pleased to be able to do so with Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who is the author of "Here, Right Matters, an American Story. You, of course, know Colonel Vindman from his testimony before the Congress uh, in the first impeachment process for the former president. Alex is joining us today from Kiev. Hi, Alex. How are you? Hey, David. How are you? So I assume you're just on vacation in the Ukraine. Uh, Nope, Uh,
0: don't make it here for vacation. Uh, Every one of these is uh, oriented on on some sort of uh, a task. My previous trips, obviously, were for uh, work. This one is also for work, but this is for my dissertation. I'm conducting interviews uh, with former senior government government officials for my uh, doctoral thesis and attending a conference.
1: Well, that sounds very productive, and I, of course. Despite a lifetime of correcting people on this, just referred to the country you're in as the Ukraine, and uh, you you may admonish me.
0: No, it's it's okay. I uh, I caught myself doing the same thing during an interview earlier today, but I admonished
1: myself. That's as far as I'm willing to go. Well, that's the that's the secret of all of this. I've read the book, and first of all, I, I want to congratulate. You. I thought it was a great read, extremely well written. The former president may have driven you out of your old job, uh, as the book discusses somewhat, but he's really set you up very nicely for the next one, because I see a lot of great books coming from you. But this one, of course, is where the story starts, literally for you and for for everybody else. And one of the things that captured everybody's imagination and, and earned you a lot of support was... When they first saw you, they very quickly got a sense of the context of your life that had brought you to this point. And that was, I I think, important because in the Trump administration, and particularly in the midst of the impeachment hearings, people were doubting a lot about America and the idea of America. And there was a lot of cynicism, I think, for some good reason. And you punctured that by talking about the story of your family and where you came from, and particularly about your father. Talk to me about how important that story was to you. Sure. So I guess since you read the book, you you
0: know full well, that I, I'm, uh, I tend to be pretty strategic and, and calculating. And frankly, that was the narrative that I, I knew I had to assemble for this impeachment. I knew that a dry story about a, some pressure on, on on a Ukrainian president just wasn't going to cut it. And that this was, as far as I was concerned, a uh, assault on the, our democracy, on the very kind of foundation of our process, which is free and fair elections and turnover of power. And um, I was not going to fall short in my efforts to defend this democracy. Uh, and that meant being very, very thoughtful on how to portray my my testimony, including offering background on my family, you know, my immigrant origins, my decades of service. I thought all of that was important to understand not just the content of what I was saying, but why I was saying it, why I was compelled to kind of give that kind of testimony. And I think, I guess I could have went a completely different way with it, And probably brought less heat on myself. I wasn't certainly interested in becoming the centerpiece of this, but I was very, very keen on on doing my job to defend this country in the best possible way. That was, I guess, to a certain extent on display. And I wanted to make sure that the American public got a chance to see a little bit of the the, behind the curtain on on public servants, myself, my uh, excellent cohort of officials that have spent decades serving this country.
1: One of the things that I guess i I hadn't picked up but comes out in the book is your father, who you spoke about in your opening testimony, was actually a trump supporter, so you were dealing internally in your own family context with what a lot of people were dealing with.
0: yeah, you know it's interesting one of the the lessons in this book, and it's really a book about lessons I drew from our my life on. How to navigate what is, you know, an unprecedented kind of unbelievably complex process that's really not navigable, not navigable without cost, at least. And one of those lessons was ultimately settling on your own counsel. I love my dad. I often listen to what my dad has to say, or at least I hear what he's saying. If not, listen to it. There's a distinction there, and it's that my father has an enormous amount of wisdom. He's 89 years old. He's lived a very, very a full life with a, a, all sorts of rich experiences. But they're his experiences and they're his conclusions. I listened to uh, what he has to say, or what he had to say. And I drew my own conclusions about what I needed to do. In this case, America was different. He was speaking in part from his own understanding of what Russia was like, what the Soviet Union was like, and what the cost would be for me giving testimony in those contexts. That was more important, frankly, than his partisan uh, positive interpretations of of Donald Trump. He was just speaking from a a place of concern, but I didn't let that rule me. I I kind of went with what I knew was right and was uh, prepared to kind of deal with the consequences. The last thing I'll mention on this one is that my father, in fact, exemplifies a exploitation that's all too common with regards to recent immigrant communities where the country of origin will propagandize and manipulate those populations, whether they're Cuban, Venezuelan, Chinese or Russian, and leverage them to kind of for their own efforts to drive a wedge between these new immigrants that love this country and the government. And I, I know this firsthand. I've seen it appear firsthand. There are way too many uh Russian immigrants that, you know, have a favorable view of, of Vladimir Putin and a negative view of government, even though they love the country.
1: Well, as as people who read the book, and I really encourage them to read it again, it's called Here, Right Matters. You know, it is, as the subtitle suggests, an American story in the truest sense, because your family first escaped the Nazis and then escaped the Soviets, came to the United States, as you know, all of us have a, have an immigrant story in our in our background, and came with an idea of what the United States was, and that was what you framed in those opening comments, and is reflected in the title of the book. Here, right matters, but I think you know I might as well just cut straight to the chase. Here, we are nine months into twenty twenty one. Donald Trump has been impeached twice and convicted zero times. He has not been prosecuted for the 12 times that uh, the Mueller investigation concluded he obstructed justice or for tax violations or for the various abuses of power that led to the the impeachment hearings. So it begs the question, do you think here right matters? Do you still believe that do i stand by those words i'd say
0: yes and the reason i could say that unequivocally you know with maybe a, a mere moment of hesitation is that yes it's been difficult and seeing events unfold over the past 4 years and the, and the subsequent 9 months it's hard to at least not have kind of a, re, a reflection and ask yourself does here your right matter does does right matter in the united states And I think my perspective, my service overseas in combat, in some of the most challenging places in the world, in in Russia for three years, really puts this country in stark contrast to uh, those locations and still stacks the U.S. up quite favorably to uh, a lot of the other places that really don't have the prosperity, don't have the freedoms, that don't have a military officer Voice deep concerns uh, about the president, and then frankly, in certain ways, walk away relatively unscathed. I mean, yes, I lost my career, it upended my life, but I couldn't do this in Russia. And that was part of the, the story behind the here Right Matters. The other thing that I've also discovered is that right doesn't matter for, for too many Americans. There are too many Americans that are willing to cast aside their views of um, moral and ethical obligations as citizens for either a personal gain. So that's the elites, that's the president's circle, that's other folks, uh, other politicians that are willing to sacrifice their oaths to serve self, to aggrandize, to accrue power. And then it also doesn't matter for too many common Americans that in order to preserve their hold Or address the grievance, preserve their hold kind of in the the social hierarchy, or address the grievance of punishing people that are different from them, either that's immigrants or coastal elites, whatever the case might be, are willing to take up arms or take up a partisan cause and cast aside the very kind of common principles that we as Americans have shared for decades and centuries. So I guess the answer is. Yes, right matters. It doesn't matter everybody, and I think part of my role in the, in this post-Ukraine impeachment world, where I've been given a voice, where uh, I now have an opportunity to kind of be an activist. It's an activist for America. It's an activist against you know division and people that fall short on their obligations, uh, especially the elites and the elected officials. And I, I'm, my job is to make, continue to make right matter for my children, my daughter.
1: Yeah, well, and you're helping to make right matter for all of us because as you and I have talked in the past, what this period has revealed is that right matter, as you just indicated, right matters, but not for everybody. And no system can work expecting everybody to behave perfectly. The secret is that the system has enough people in it that that when people try to lead it astray, the kind of antibodies within the system stop that. And you were one of those antibodies. You know, you were in a meeting. You heard the president say something. It was clearly illegal. Other people in the meeting did not immediately go to the lawyer. But there was enough people in the meeting, you, and there was also... And And feel free to you know elaborate on how this worked. There was also a whistleblower. But between you guys or you people, the result was not only the impeachment, but I think even you know kind of more importantly, in the sense of the system working, you were in a meeting where the President of the United States tried to shake down the President of Ukraine, say, "Do this thing for me, or I'm not giving you the money that the Congress has appropriated." And you said, whoa, that can't go. And the whistleblower said the same thing. And within five weeks, the money was released. So, you know, it, it, it worked, right? It's pretty
0: amazing, actually, that I think in a lot of ways, it's interesting that I get labeled a whistleblower, I guess. I mean, that, that may or may not fit, but whistleblowers sometimes have exhausted their re- recourse inside of uh, organizations and then have to go outside of organizations, whether it's like Pentagon papers or leaks or something of that nature. I didn't do that. I worked within the system based on the authorities I had uh, you know being a, a director on the National Security Council is pretty serious business it's i mean in, in a different position, I may have not been able to kind of operate cleanly within channels, but here what I was able to do is I was able to Take this kind of scheme out of the shadows being orchestrated by you know Trump's inner circle, Mick Mulvaney, Rudy Giuliani, Gordon Sondland, and so forth, and draw that out into the open. I pulled it in out from, you know, this kind of like informal hold and uh, a pressure campaign extortion effort into a national security process in which I was able to basically push this up through assistant, deputy assistant secretary, assistant secretary, all the way up to the deputies and say, this is wrong. This is what we should be doing. And meanwhile, in the same time, the other whistleblower had initiated a process that also worked through Inspector General Channels, ODNI, and went to Congress. And those things kind of met together and we were, we were able to, of course, correct. Not because we kind of like, we're looking to upend a policy process, because that's not what happened. There was no policy change. We were able to, to course correct on what amounted to a legal action, whether it's a violation of the Impoundment Act or whatever the case may be. Probably more important than the impeachment itself is that we pulled back, drew back the curtain on the Trump administration and this idea of good governance. And that was the first chip on the fact that, you know, this was a truly corrupt presidency and it was a minor, it was kind of just a, a small peek beyond the curtain. Then we got a chance to see a COVID mismanagement and economic catastrophe, and the president inflaming uh, civil unrest, and all these things added to the the population in a mandate, frankly, voting the president out by seven million votes, which is unprecedented. That's a huge margin. Even if the electoral college was a large margin, the popular vote was enormous, and that just kind of, I think, is is a, a, a clear indication that this somehow all these pieces fell together and it worked.
1: You know, I can't help but ask a a, a sort of a sidebar question in all of this, because you're in Ukraine right now. And I've always wondered what the people in the government of Ukraine thought of the United States as all this was going on. Presumably, you've talked to some of them. And I, I note that the the president of Ukraine actually met with the president of the United States was last week. I mean, it was, it finally happened. Have they sort of taken you aside and said, boy, you, you guys are crazy guys. I mean, have they sort of talked to you about it? No, it's
0: interesting. Um, my, My research is more historical and it draws on different aspects of the bilateral relationship up to 2014. And I've made it actually a point to not really engage I mean, I will at some point, but I haven't engaged with this current administration because I didn't want to certainly didn't want to be in a position of like feeding that any deep state narratives. But I have had people come to me and whether it's in interviews or even with uh, former officials from previous administrations, tell me that it was indicative of the lack of clarity in the U.S. on Ukraine and the lack of coherent strategy for Ukraine. Going back uh, a decade a couple of decades for that matter, so I think um, that's a question I'm going to ask in the future. I just haven't asked that yet, and I'm curious to see what kind of feedback I get from folks that you know that started out with the Zelensky administration that maybe office have some of those folks on the on the uh, interview list. but you know it's interesting I don't want to in any way undermine the fact that we had for a large number of folks where right doesn't matter those senators and those congressmen that did the president's bidding that could have been the end of the story the fact is that trump could have just got walked away from from his corruption but that's not what ended up happening those senators and congressmen enabled the president to mismanage a covid pandemic that resulted in hundreds of thousands more casualties than it needed to be so it's not just simply You know, the fact that, yes, the American public saw the light and and voted Trump out, but those folks are still in power and those folks haven't haven't been held accountable. And um, I guess in er urging people to make right matter in the United States, we should be looking at these folks, these officials that have failed to live up to their obligations, that failed to live up to the values that we expect of our public officials and hold them
1: accountable. Just been jumping back towards towards the book now, I think one of those things that's you know interesting to a lot of people about the story is you sit in this meeting, you hear the president say this, your hair is immediately set on fire, and whereas many people would go straight back into their cubicle because who could they tell, or they didn't want to tell anybody, you went straight to the. National Security Council ethics person, who was your brother, your twin brother, who's like come up through the system. And I think both of you then went into the the more senior attorney. But how did that change the story that it happened to be that your brother was there?
0: So yeah, a hair on fire for like an infantryman that's been in combat equivalent. So it's like, It's like, take a look around take a breath and then know exactly what you're going to do. That's 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 the equivalent of hair on fire. But, yes, you know, it's interesting because I have had this conversation with my brother. I think it's awesome that he was there and that he could bear witness and join me in reporting this. But in a lot of ways, I went into that office less as a formal report and more of the fact that he's my twin brother. And I wanted to let him know that he had all the clearances. So it was totally appropriate for me to do this. Hey, listen to this. You'll never believe the crazy thing that I just saw. And I was able to you know, b- both make that, that report and then police them up and then immediately go back to, to John Eisenberg, who was the chief, who's the senior attorney there. The same person I had made uh, my, my earlier complaint to on July 10th when Gordon Sondland had first proposed this, this quid pro quo saying that Mick Mulvaney was doing this on the, on behalf of the president. I mean, so to me, uh, I knew exactly what I was going to going to do. And I, I, maybe I was, I shouldn't have pulled my twin brother into it. He would have, he might've had an easier go of it if I hadn't done that. But, um, it's pretty amazing, you know, for the, for this subtitle of an American story that the two of us, two little immigrant kids, you know, coming here as toddlers, starting out with really nothing in New York landed in the white house, that itself is a pretty amazing story. You know, the, the Vinman twins or, or the NSC twins, as we were kind of joking and called. That could have been like a pretty, pretty awesome story in itself that the career we had up until that point. But that was not the end of it. That was just kind of the, the beginning. And we're in a, in a position to, you know, again, do what we uh, what we knew was the right thing to do.
1: It's also kind of interesting in juxtaposition to, you know, the other guy from Queens. The other guy from New York, I remember talking to you once and you said, well, I, you know, I'm from New York. I thought I I knew how to talk to this guy or I, I, you know, I knew how he thought, but, you know, he was also son of an immigrant. He turned out completely differently.
0: Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I, I, I guess there's, a, there's something to be said that the immigrant experience is not obviously common to all. For me, it was there was a component of giving back to this country. For him and his family, it's about squeezing as much as they can out of this country, and that's just something that I don't understand. I mean, he also called you know people that serve the public interest or military folks that have died for this country suckers and losers, and that's just not something that I, I understand. He he just does not understand the concept of service.
1: People in the military that I know typically do understand the concept of service, but people in the military and Washington. Also understand the, the concept of, you know, sort of keeping your head down and moving up, moving up the ladder. Seems you got a bunch of that when you were de- dealing with this. How was the response from within the military? So uh, it's interesting. I, uh, the folks that were out of the military
0: were very supportive and, you know, were saying that I should stay, stick around. Uh, everything will kind of return back to normal. A lot of wishful thinking, frankly, because at that, that time when I had to make a decision on on leaving the military, every data point I had received to that point was, there was nothing left for you here. It was complete dead silence from both the civilian and military uh, senior officials, folks that had relationships with going back decades, uh, wouldn't wouldn't speak to me, wouldn't kind of offer some encouragement. Even the the data points I had where people were supportive of me, there was at least one three-star general I refer, referred to in the book that was supportive of me. He was supportive of me in, in, in leaving the military because he recognized that there was nothing left for me to do. I wouldn't be able to serve as a foreign area officer with, a, at that point, a meteoric kind of rise serving in Moscow, serving in the Pentagon for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who, you know, the, my chairman, Chairman Dunford was very complimentary. Uh, you know, one of his last acts as a, as the chairman was to Sing my praises, which is a pretty awesome thing to do to have to have the senior military officer do that. Just as I was being attacked by nefarious characters and Trump sy- sycophants, and then everybody else was just was like you said, keeping their head down. And I think there is there is a wishful thinking about this that it was to preserve the, the institution, to protect the institution, to prevent the institution from running afoul. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's what you sensed earlier is people keeping their heads down continuing to kind of move, move up without stepping into a a minefield. And unfortunately, that may have also been a factor in the way Afghanistan was conducted for 20 years, where plenty of people noticed that there was something wrong, but nobody raised the the alarm because they didn't want to upend their careers.
1: Yeah. And I think that was a Trump story. I mean, you know, you did the courageous thing. You stepped up, you called it out. Other people did the courageous thing along the way, including people like Ambassador Yovanovitch and other people who sort of spoke the truth and paid the price for it. There does seem to be a crop of the people who sort of kept their head down. who are now out there also writing books and talking to the press and saying, well, behind the scenes, I was really tough on this. That is very, very disappointing. Uh, You know, at, at the,
0: at a moment where those they're, council their commentary could have kept this country safe or averted a January 6th type event where we really we that was a real kind of a, a significant blow to our to our country and our democracy and that's something that we'll have to live with th- throughout the rest of our history folks could have prevented that and they didn't and that's that's just not something i i could look kindly on i don't well, have, I have any to say, comfort- i don't want to
1: put you in a tough spot but one of the ones that i find kind of interesting and you can just demure on the question, but, you know, there's a there are a lot of articles coming out now where you've got like, or books, where you've got General Milley, General Dunford's successor saying, well, that was a Reichstag moment. And uh, talking about how they sp- spoke up, but they didn't speak up for you. And they didn't speak up when they were asked to walk across Lafayette Square. And. You know, choosing your battles is a military expression, but if you don't choose the right ones, you have to be questioned about the ones that you do choose, right i mean what i would what, what I would offer on this one is
0: Donald Trump is a predator. he understands you know people's weaknesses and could prey on them and i th- I think the the lack of a firm stand on some of the earlier consequential Moments where leaders could have spoken up and taken a stand, and didn't do that, encouraged the president to to take more, to grab more, to to think he could get away with um trying to advance in his insurrection. And I think that that might be. I think that's that's pretty clear where I stand on this issue.
1: I, I think it is. Good. Let me ask you just one more question. Playing a senior role in the Trump administration, working in that White House. It was kind of a a moral fog. There were a lot of people who didn't know exactly how to come out on it. They enabled the president on some bad stuff. They stood up on some other stuff. You know, we have stories now of Bill Barr, who was a big enabler and did some terrible stuff, standing up to the president on the election. You once said to me, and we were talking about something for this other book that I'm doing, And I'm going to paraphrase it, so correct me how I got it wrong. But you had said that, you know, one of the challenges was determining, you know, as you looked at what the president was doing, understanding the difference between the awful and lawful and the awful and unlawful. Can you talk a little bit about what that challenge was for somebody in that White House? Sure. So
0: I I guess I would start by saying that I did my due diligence before uh, showing up to the NSC. I talked to a number of officials that were there and in a lot of ways, you know, not to a total clarity, but to a significant degree, understood what I was getting into. And I knew that there would be some things that would might potentially be awful that I might be asked to do. But as a military officer being directed by the commander in chief to do something, I'd have to do that. It's just the way things work. But I also, whether I I knew it at that time, I also had a, a line. And I wouldn't was not willing to go do do anything unlawful. And I think uh, maybe in certain ways, my my preparation, my due diligence going in there ahead of time, you know, even if there was a little bit of wishful thinking that I could talk to this guy, to New Yorkers, kind of, uh, you know, communicate with him on on why he should be taking a particular approach. I also it was clear to me that, you know, there were certain things I just wasn't going to do as a military officer. I'd sworn an oath to uh, support and defend the Constitution. All those different building blocks, all those tools that I assembled over the course of my life, lessons I learned from my father, decades of military service, I was not going to sacrifice this for for anyone, not the president, not anybody else. And I wasn't going to do that. Certainly, I wasn't going to do that to just save my career.
1: Well, here, right? Matters is the story of, of your having to confront that and do what you did, of course, by By doing what you did, you stopped the president from doing something unlawful. You stopped the president from potentially getting what he wanted and potentially upsetting the outcome of the election as a result of getting what he wanted. That's something that's not often discussed in this. As a result, it was historically consequential on many levels. And we're glad you were there. And we're glad that you were raised the way you were and had the values you did. And we're fortunate as a country that more often than not there is somebody there like this. In this case, it was you. So, thanks very much not only for uh, the book and spending the time with us, but for doing what you did. Again, the book is "Here, Right Matters: An American Story" by Alexander Vinman. I strongly encourage you to get it. You can't really understand what happened in the past few years without reading it. This is an insider perspective. That is one of the most straightforward and it's not about Alex preparing for his uh, running for president. As far as I know, I don't think it's uh, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> you know, it's not not about, not about, uh, you know, the next phase of his political career. Instead, it's about what he did then and what he's continuing to do, which is tell the truth. We're real grateful that you could join us and hopefully we'll we'll get to talk to you again sometime soon. Uh, safe travels back. And thank you very much, Alex.
0: Thank you, David. I enjoyed the conversation.